Well, I'm no maker of music, uh, but I do enjoy listening to it. Uh, some of my favorite songs tell stories. And actually, one of my biggest frustrations with a lot of new music is there's a lot of lyrics that say a lot about nothing. Uh, but the stories we tell and the songs we often sing, they reveal something about what we think about the world. They open up our hopes and our dreams, sometimes our fears and our worries. Uh, they reveal some of our deep down longings that we have in our heart. And a lot of those things come out in songs. And music uniquely connects with people. That's why we sing on Sunday mornings. That's why we just got done singing here. So a lot of these songs, whether they're worship songs or they're just songs you might hear on the radio, some of these, they will tell you what the good life is. You know what I mean? The good life. So what is the good life? There's a song on the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack called Big Rock Candy Mountain. Um, Big Rock Candy Mountain. It's a, it's a song that sings lyrics about what it describes as the good life, or at least according to the person who wrote it. Uh, here's a list of some of the things that the songwriter celebrates as the good life. These are verbatim, some of the lyrics. Talks about handouts that grow on trees, trees that sprout cigarettes, bulldogs that have rubber teeth so that their guard dog bites don't hurts. They're harmless. There's a landscape with streams of alcohol, a lake of stew and whiskey too. The mountains are made of rock candy. He dreams of a world. There's no tools. So there's no shovels, axes, saws, or picks. He wants to sleep all day. And finally, he says he wants to hang the jerk that invented work. Now, what kind of good life is this? Destructive and lazy behaviors are nothing that can be labeled good, to be sure. Life at Big Rock Candy Mountain probably isn't very good at all. Probably a society of theft and rotten teeth and heart disease. So what is the good life? Well, there are better songs, and the Bible has plenty of them. So let's try out the lyrics of, let's say, Psalm 128. It says this, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like the fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall be the man who fears the Lord. See, the good life here is very different from Big Rock Candy Mountain. It's a man who works. He has blessing all around him. He's done all that he can to provide for those underneath his care. There's growth and fruitfulness, and those are evidences of God's blessing. See, the good life, according to Psalm 128, according to the Bible, is one that has godliness, responsibility, stewardship, and a deep awareness of God's presence. Has a deep awareness of the God who in fact invented work, and he's not a jerk at all. So this morning, we're going to open up our Bibles and look at what the good life is before anything bad entered in. We're going to do that by going to Genesis chapter 2. So I invite you, uh, if you have a Bible, to open up to Genesis chapter 2. 
If you do not have a Bible, there should be some hardback black ones around you. Uh, You can find it conveniently on page two of your Bibles. We do like to give Bibles away. So if you don't have one or you have someone in your life who you would like to give one to, we have some, some other ones on the bookshelves in the lobby area. Feel free to take one of those just as a gift um, for yourself or for someone else. So join me as we read Genesis chapter two, verses four through 17. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God created the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The, fir- the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. In the land of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree that is in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Here's what I want to argue from this text today. The wonder and work that we have in the garden point us to the wonder and work to come. The wonder and work in the garden point us to the wonder and work to come. And to be a little bit more clear, even here at the beginning of the Bible, we we begin to read something of the wonder, not just of a time back then, but a time to come. We're reading about the wonder that believers will experience in the new creation. So right from the very beginning, I want to be clear, even at the beginning of the Bible, it's pointing ahead to what's going to happen at the end for those who believe in Jesus. And we're already anticipating the work of someone else. We're seeing the work here of Adam and of God, but we're anticipating the work of Jesus, the one who comes later in the biblical narrative. And he's the one who's already entered into our world. So wonder and work in the garden point us to wonder and work to come. The first thing I want to do is just orient us to the Genesis narrative again. So several weeks ago, we first opened up 
the Bibles to page one, to Genesis chapter one, and we saw what was there. So there we see the first seven days of creation. And what we learn there is that God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. And as you read that first chapter of Genesis, it becomes very clear that there is a climax in the story. And that climax was found in day six, where God created the man. And what's unique about the creation of this one was that the man was made in his image. To be sure, it was the man and the woman made in God's image. Now, we just spent three weeks in the sermon series in Genesis looking at particular implications of this image of God in our world. The image of God in the creation of man was unique during these seven days of creation. And at the end of this particularly unique day, it's not just that it was good. We saw that repeated throughout chapter one. We saw that the creation of man and everything else was very good. This was the opening chapter of Genesis. And then it ends, has this new setting, and God is resting. And it says that he is resting because he is enjoying the work that he had done in creation. He had just completed an amazing work. So God is there working in the very beginning. Now to recap, if I could just put a heading on Genesis chapter 1. It's that God is the king. And he has created a kingdom. God is the king and he has created a kingdom. He alone is the one who rules and reigns because he is the one who's created everything underneath him. God is the king. That much is very clear from the very opening of our Bibles. Now, as we continue reading in Genesis, we come across this passage that we opened up to first in Genesis chapter 2, particularly in verse 4. Now, you'll notice if you look on your Bibles, it might be visually set apart in some ways. Usually in Genesis and in other places, that means that there's some kind of poetic elements. And helpfully for us, it helps us to, helps us to see that there's a new section beginning here. So look there in verse four, see some more white space around there. It opens up and it says, these are the generations. Now these generations and these are the generations is something that's repeated throughout the storyline of Genesis. So we'll see that the author has intentionally used this to organize material here. We'll see that there's about 10 units that these are the generations marks. You see that all throughout Genesis. So usually after these are the generations, it'll then say a person. And then the rest of that unit will begin to tell about that person. So we're usually introduced to a main character here. Verse four does something a little bit different. It's connecting us not to a person, but to the beginning of everything. And it's kind of connecting Genesis chapter one to Genesis chapter two. We see that by the repetition of the heavens and the earth. So these are the generations. The next instance of these are the generation comes in Genesis chapter five. So if you flip over, you'll be able to see that. So the first unit that we're looking at in Genesis starts in Genesis chapter two, continues on through Genesis chapter four. So today we enter into this first unit of Genesis. Now there's another thing we can note about this language here. You know, by generations, we can see that the book of Genesis is truly about family. It's about the family and, and a particular family. In this first unit, we have a progression of what we'll see is seven generations. 
We saw the creation of Adam. We're going to see seven generations. This becomes a very important number in Genesis and other parts of the Bible. We see seven generations from Adam to a man named Lamech. The second thing we see is this is about a family, but it's about a particularly dysfunctional family. So if you come from a dysfunctional family, you're going to find, you could relate to some things going on in Genesis, okay? This is a very dysfunctional family. In fact, I'll call this progression. You're going from Genesis chapter one and two, you have this wonder to a place of wickedness. This progression, it's wonder to wickedness. In the first generation, Adam and Eve are created. In the second generation, we'll see that Adam's son, Cain, murders his brother very quickly. And then in seven generations later, we read about Lamech. And what we see about him, some details, he marries multiple wives and he commits murder as well. So it's a pretty strong language. Genesis chapter 4 then ends this first section of Genesis. Here's some of the language that it uses. I mentioned murder. Lamech then sings this song about his revenge. He says that Cain's revenge was sevenfold and Lamech's revenge was 77-fold. So this is a complete and total downfall from what we just read in Genesis chapter one. Wickedness has multiplied exponentially. Now I just wanted to share this so that we know what's coming. Life is not always like what we read in Genesis chapter 2. We know what's coming, and we even begin to see some indications of something about to go very wrong, even here. So, as we move back to our passage, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. What we're seeing is a transition happening. You could describe it kind of like a camera lens. So it's looking at the days of creation. It's spanning over everything that we've just read in Genesis chapter 1, and then it's going to focus particularly on day six, the day six of creation, which is the creation of man. You could also think of it like an inset map. You know, you're looking at, let's say, a map of the United States, and there's this section that particularly focuses on a state, let's say Massachusetts, so that you can see Massachusetts in more detail. You know what I'm talking about? You're looking at a map, and you get more detail in one part of that map. So that's part of what's happening here in Genesis chapter two. So, As we zoom in to day six of creation, what do we see? Well, the first thing we see is the wonder of creation. We see the wonderful, awe-inducing creation of man and his surroundings in the garden. So the first thing we see, wonder of creation. That's our first W. I have a couple W's here for us. Wonder in creation. Look down in verse 5. The author goes on to say, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and the mist was going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So the wonder of the creation of man can be seen here in some of the details that are used to describe his creation. You see them there. You notice some of the words that are used. Notice what God did, how he exactly created the man. It says he formed him. He formed the man. This image here of forming is like a potter working with a piece of clay, tenderly, carefully 
creatively, intricately fashioning the crown of his creation. That's what's going on here when he's creating man. This careful language is echoed in Psalm 139. We just read this passage last week on Sunday. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. I was being intricately woven in the depths of the earth. See, God's particular care, the intricate nature with which he treated man, which was unique from everything else. Man is set apart. Now, this is interesting. The Genesis account is at least 6,000 years ago. David then wrote that psalm many years later. So I wonder, have you meditated on the fact that you are creatively, intricately, carefully created? God created you. This is God describing how he created all of us. Have you reflected on that? Notice how the author goes on in verse 7. He goes on from forming to breathing. The man is fashioned and formed, but now this breath is breathed into him by God. This breath of life invigorates his body and the man comes alive. God is like this kind father who gives life to his son. Have you numbered the amount of breaths that you've taken since you sat down in this room? And have you recognized that every single one of them is a gift of God's grace? God has given us life and praise God for it. The wonder of creation of our very life as humans is amazing. It's different from everything else. But then we see more creation going on. In fact, most of the details that we see here in chapter two are not about the creation of man. It becomes more about the creation of the setting that he's in. And you can see that here as we keep on reading throughout this passage. We see the creation, not just of man, but the creation of a garden. And what we just see is more wonder. We see that Eden is a land of delight. And it's particularly in the life-giving presence of God. You can glance down in verse 8. Look what God does. He doesn't just form man. He plants a garden and he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This image that we get of the garden of Eden is this place of luxury and pleasure. The trees are pleasant. They are good for food. And Adam has been made and he's been Put in here, and it's as if he was put into a five star resort out of this world. In fact, I don't know if you've been to a five star resort, whatever your image of that is, it looks like a trash dump compared to what we see here. It's utterly amazing. Everything around is pleasant and luxurious. And to my eyes, the best part is there's good food everywhere. Amen? There's food everywhere and good food, and it looks good too. Um, and then this section, it goes on. It describes more things. Look in verse 10. It describes this, these rivers. Now, what's going on with rivers? What's going on with stones? There's these precious stones. Just glance down verse 10 through 14. All these rivers. As we look back and read this passage in Genesis chapter 2, we've got to recognize that it's very likely Moses wrote the book. He's writing in an ancient Near East context. And rivers then were what provided life. Like, no one lived away from a river or a body of water. 
There was no life apart from water. And so we have passages like Psalm 46, verse 5, that indicate there's actually greater capacities of rivers that are spoken about. You know, just for instance, Psalm 46, verse 5 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. See, rivers are life-giving. They are soul-gladdening. And this Psalm 46 speaks about this river flowing out of God's very presence. So what we're seeing here is more detail about the setting that they're in. We see precious stones, don't we? We see gold, bdellium, onyx. They're signs of wealth that are going on. So God has taken this 20-star resort, let's say, and he's dumped a never-ending flow of life and stacks of gold on top of it. Anyone else trying to go there? I would go there right now. But that's not the world that we live in, is it? But we're getting dizzied almost at the abundance of God's extravagant care of the man and his endless provision that he gave here at the beginning. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this in Genesis chapter 2? And what does this mean for us? As I said, all of these details are pointers to something that is to come. Wonder and work in creation point us to the wonder and work to come. Here, the wonder of creation points us to the wonder of worship. The wonder of worship. The created worships the creator. There's two application points that we see directly in some Psalms. As, as they went back and read this, this is how they reflected on it. So we ought to reflect the same way too. I read Psalm chapter 8 in our opening prayer, but Psalm 8 shows us how amazing it is that God even considers us. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It is amazing. God takes thought for each and every one of us here today. Psalm 130, it reflects on this passage as well. And it shows us something unique about God. It shows his compassion and grace. Did you notice that man was not created out of gold? Man was created out of dust. Psalm 130 verse 13 and 14 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers us. He's compassionate towards us because he knows that he created us out of dust, not out of gold. We need God's grace and compassion. That is the wonder of creation. Next, give you another W. We go from the wonder of creation to the work of man. From the wonder of creation to the work of man. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Look down in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And goes on and describes other things. So we can see here the work of man. Now notice in this passage, there's a notable movement throughout Genesis chapter 2. So you see in verse 5, there's a problem. Glance down there, see if you can figure out what the problem is in verse 5. There's no worker. In chapter 2, verse 8, God then makes the worker and places him in the garden. And now in verse 15, there's more details given there, right? You see a progression going on. 
So in verse 5, it tells us the kind of thing that this man is supposed to do in this setting. And it says that God gives to man a responsibility. God specifically tells Adam to work and to keep the garden. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? What does this mean in the Bible story? Well, as we peel back some of the details here, we'll see that the creation of man is not simply so that Adam can be a worker primarily. The details are about Adam becoming a worshiper. Adam is not simply a worker. He is a worshiper. Further, we'll see that the creation of the garden is not simply an extravagant paradise. It's the place of God's presence. We'll see that Adam is a priest in the divine sanctuary. So here's where I get that. I want to show you this. Let's start with Adam. As we look back at Genesis chapter 1 with the man and the woman, they're created. And what are they created in? The image of God, right? In this way, they served as one who would mediate God's presence in the world. They're not God, but there's something about God that they reflect in the world. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And then God gave them a function, verse 20, chapter 1, verse 28. He says that they are to subdue it and have dominion over the created order. Now, this is language of royalty. Man has this royal role to play in the world. And then we see, looking ahead to our passage here, verse 15, we see that Adam is commissioned to work and to keep the garden. This could also be translated as serving and guarding. He's working and keeping, but he's also serving and guarding. Now, the person who would have originally listened to those terms would have thought about something else. Who would have thought about the priests and the tabernacle that comes up later, let's say in Exodus. And this task is uniquely given to the Levites. Now, the Levites were the ones who were to go into God's presence. They were to minister to God on behalf of the people. And so what we see here in Adam, even in the very beginning, we're seeing pointers to Adam, not as a worker, but as a worshiper. Adam is this first priest in the world. So that's Adam. Let's look at the garden very quickly. We saw that the garden was abundantly fruitful, right? There's all kinds of food. Amen. I'm excited about that. And then there was onyx stone and gold all around, and it's in abundance, right? So it's interesting when you go back and read in Exodus about the tabernacle. It's decorated elaborately with fruit and with floral designs that make them think of the time in Eden, onyx stone and gold are used for the priestly vestments that the priests would wear. They had a golden crown, a golden ephod. They had onyx stones on their chest with the names of Israel engraved in them. Gold also covers much of the furniture that was in the tabernacle. So we see this garden is not simply a garden. It's a tabernacle. Adam isn't simply a man. He is a priest. Adam is one who's placed there as a worker and not only to work, but to worship in his work. One other detail that helps us understand what's going on here. Glance back up in Genesis chapter two, verse two. I mentioned this earlier. We see three times that God is described as a worker during the days of creation, right? And you see that there. Wonder and work in creation point us to work and wonder to come. 
here we see that the work of man points to work as worship. Now, most of us spend the majority of our time working in some capacity, whether that's you're getting paid for your work, you're working in your home, you're doing something that's related to work. Now, it's important for us to see some details here. When you think about yourself and your own work, this passage helps us to understand our place in all of this. See, our dignity, the dignity of our work is not something that's terrible. In fact, we see before the fall, work is implemented in creation, right? Before anything bad is introduced, work is there. So the dignity of our work comes from the fact that God is the first worker. And he then has created us to image him in our work. Work for us ought to be an act of worship. We see this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Paul, when he looks back on this passage, he applies it to his people. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as the reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So in your work, it is worship. God gave man a vocation in the world, and the purpose of our work is to bring all things underneath his good kingly rule and reign. Wherever your work is, that's what you're supposed to do. We see some other indications here. Do we not see chaos all around? God makes order out of chaos. Do we not see patterns of work that are going on here? God patterns work for us. So I want us to consider briefly your own work. Consider your own work. And it's just true. I'm not going to see or experience a lot of things that you will. In your work day, in your life, we might have some similarities, but there's a lot of things that you're going to see that I'm not going to see in my work. Yeah, there's chaos, even in church world. Um, there's difficulty, there's strains. I see some of those things that you don't see, but you see a lot of things in your environment that I will not see. But here's what I do know. God has uniquely fashioned and created you. He's given you unique talents, abilities, training to do exactly what he created Adam to do, to image him in his workplace. You are to do that very same thing. How do you make order out of chaos? How do you bring dignity to a place that does not recognize dignity, perhaps? As you think about the purpose of your work, look back to what God has created man to do. He's created you to do something very unique, and you have unique opportunities. You have unique eyes to see areas that no one else can see. Like, I just thought about some, de some particular professions in this room. Uh, for anyone, it doesn't matter what work you're in, you can be a refreshingly kind person. Can you not? There's a lot of unrefreshingly unkind people in workplaces, right? What would it look like for you to be a refreshingly kind person in your workplace? That's a great way to image God in your work. Uh, you can also share your faith. And I know it's difficult, but it's worth it to consider the ways that you can do that uniquely using your own heart, your own story. You've been placed there to advance the kingdom of God, even in your workplace. And you can do that in appropriate ways. So those are for everyone, but some particular jobs. Let's consider those of you who do research. A lot of researchers in the room, a lot of very smart people, much smarter than I am. Uh, let's say somebody does cancer research, or I don't know, you think about your own field. Think about, you're using the abilities that God has given you to alleviate suffering in the world. 
if you're doing cancer research, you're providing new insights into God's world for the treatments of serious diseases. That is a great way to bring order out of chaos. What about those of you who work in insurance? A lot of us get frustrated at insurance, which is fine. But if you do your job rightly, you're providing healthy and appropriate protection for the resources that people have worked hard for. And in the case of emergency, you're helping them out. Isn't that a redemptive way to think about your work there? What about those who work in the judicial system? Some of you work in this environment. What would it look like for you, even in the places that you've been put, to treat people with dignity and respect, to appropriately apply laws for the restraint of evil and the flourishing of the good? You can do that in your work. What about if you're the person who's washing dishes at a restaurant? Now, you want to see some chaos, you can go to a restaurant during rush hour. And let me just say, if that's your job, you are doing the heavy lifting of bringing order in a chaotic world. Because us people who like food, we're not very careful in how much mess we make. So thank God for you. You're bringing order to that place. Let's think about mothers. Some of you aren't going to a workplace, but you spend most of your time caring for your children. You're caring for your home. What are you doing there? How can you redemptively approach your work there? Well, you're providing nurture and care to children who would otherwise be very vulnerable in this world. Do them good. You provide them safety. You provide them food. That is dignifying as a person. It's very much needed for our children. And God knows they need it. This passage also brings a question in my mind. Sometimes people will go back to Genesis chapter 2, and it's interesting who's not here yet. All right, who's not here in Genesis chapter 2 yet? It's the woman. So some people will go to Genesis chapter 2, and they'll make this argument that men are the only ones to work. And women are ought not to work. Now, if we just read other places in the Bible, I don't think that's appropriate. Um, let me just say, Proverbs chapter 31 describes this ideal woman. And let me just give you a list of some things that she's doing, okay? She's working with willing hands. She's providing food for her household. She's considering a field and she buys it. She plants a vineyard and she curates merchandise that is profitable. You could go on more and more things, but at the very least, we could say that it is an inappropriate way to use Genesis chapter 2 to say that women are not allowed to work. Just read other places in the Bible. Now, in our marriages, it might be okay for you not to work. You know, we all have unique settings that we're in. In all of our marriages, and all of our life circumstances, we do this unique dance with one another. So... You have the freedom to choose what you do with your time, but you use it redemptively. And we ought not to look down on women who work as if it's undignifying. In fact, it is very dignifying. And we see evidence of a woman doing that kind of work in Proverbs chapter 31. Okay, that's the work, the work of man in creation. But we know that all work is not good. We see this indicated even in controversies over interpreting biblical texts. So our, our, th our third W is warping, the warping of wonder and work. 
we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but is it just not true that we might experience more thorns and thistles in our work than we do joyful abundance and luxury? This work has become warped. In a lot of ways, work becomes less good in our minds. It becomes hard, hated, idolized, and misdirected. We see some indications of this as we go to the end of this passage in verse 17. You notice at the very end, it says, there's a tree in this garden of good and evil. You shall not eat of it. For in the day that you do eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see in this world of abundant yes, there is only one no. And the no is not simply to not eat fruit. The no is to become like God. And we've warped a lot of things in our world by trying to become God ourselves. There's a lot of details in this text that we see warping happen. In Genesis chapter 2, there's a bush and a field there. Later, that gets turned to thorns and thistles. We see mist watering the whole face of the ground. Later, that foreshadows a flood that is to come. We see man working the ground to image God there, but later we see that man is cast outside of the garden to then work a cursed ground. The garden in the east, there's a detail there that foreshadows the casting of Adam and Eve out to the east. Later on in Genesis, east is the direction of judgment. We see that God created every tree pleasant to the sight and good for food. If you're familiar with the Bible, what is the precise thing that Satan says to Adam and Eve? It's pleasant to your sight and good for food. Satan warps everything. It's as if almost everything we read that is good in Genesis chapter 2 becomes warped by Satan and sin in this world. This applies to us today. We live in a warped world. We read in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. We see in Proverbs 14, verse 12, that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. Death is all around. And if death is at the end of this passage, after the creation of the worker, this leads us to the problem that we had at the beginning of the passage, right? There's no worker, no true worker. We need a new worker. And we get some indications of this. This is my last W we get to the work of Christ. The wonder and work of creation points us to the wonder and work of another. And let's just be clear, that worker is Jesus. Let's see this here. We see generations there in verse four. Whose generation? Whose family are we talking about? Later on in the Bible, it becomes very clear. This generation points us to Jesus at the end of the generation. Some other details you see here, you see this term Lord God used throughout the passage. That's not anywhere else in the Pentateuch. We see it repeated everywhere in Genesis 2 and 3. Not anywhere else. I should, one other place, but no other place is that term recognized. So what we're seeing here is the author is making very clear that God is the creator and he is the one who maintains his covenant with his people. And how has God maintained his covenant with his people today? By sending his son. See, Jesus is the original worker. He has accomplished his work in the world. This was approved by his resurrection. And now we are invited into the fruits of his work. Let me make this a little bit more clear. Paul, when he looks back in Genesis chapter 2, Romans chapter 5, he says, Adam is a type of the one to come. 
Adam is a type that is pointing to Jesus. There's also this interesting passage at the end of John chapter 20, which I've always been curious about, where Jesus, after his resurrection, is mistaken to be a gardener. John chapter 20, verse 15. My question was, why? Why is he mistaken as a gardener? Well, he was buried in a tomb next to a garden, so that would make sense. But usually there's no detail in the text of scripture that's not intentional. So what I think is going on here is that Jesus, having resurrected from the grave, he has proven that he was the one to fulfill the work that the first gardener did not complete. Jesus is the perfect gardener. He brought the rule and reign of God to earth, and now he brings all things in subjection to himself. He exercises perfect dominion over this earth and over those who are his by faith. So in all ways, it is very fitting that Jesus would be the gardener. Jesus is the gardener. It's amazing to think about. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, that Jesus is the last Adam. He didn't simply receive breath to have temporary life. He was resurrected from the grave to have and give eternal life. We have borne the image of this fractured and marred man of dust, is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. But we now have access to the true image of God that's in Jesus himself. And our hope comes from this being real. So then... What is the good life? The good life must begin with wonder. Wonder at God, wonder at his work in Christ. This helps us to see who we are and what our purpose and place is in the world. This wonder, this good life also causes us to work redemptively and to worship redemptively in our world. If you've not responded to this great worker by repentance and faith, I would invite you to do that. That's the first step. For the rest of us, work for the good of God's kingdom in our world. Let's do that this week. But I want to leave us on, leave us with a question. There's still more wonder to come. And it comes to the creation of another person and another institution just who that is and what that institution is, we'll have to wait until next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us out of your abundance the wonder of the world. Lord, help us to see your grace and your compassion in that. Lord, we thank you that you have sent Christ to be the worker on our behalf to accomplish everything that we have failed to do. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed our work. Lord, give us insight in how to do that. Lord, help us to be redemptive in our work, to advance your kingdom in our workplaces, in our homes, in our lives. Lord, help us to stand in awe at the worker who was to come and the worker who still is to come as we eagerly await his coming. Lord, we ask that you would help us to work well in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.